Hey, good afternoon, Crosswalk. Hey, welcome, welcome to summer. Yeah, it's hot in here. Be, don't move. Sit quietly, please. No, thank you for being here. Listen, um, really um, amazing worship team. Thank you so much, Pastor Ron. So good to have you here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, big week, big week. We, um, for those pastors of us here, a bunch of us went to the North American Division Called Convention, which is the um, pastor's convention that they have every like five years. They haven't had it in quite a few years due to COVID. And so it was in Lexington, Kentucky, which is definitely a town. And um, we were there in Lexington, Kentucky, which is inter interesting. Um, and... It was pretty cool because Crosswalk was really well represented. Um, Pastor Isai was the music director for the whole time and he was amazing, absolutely. So good, so good. Um, Pastor Patty from Portland, Oregon was the, um, was the host for the whole time. He and a person from Southeastern California Conference. So he stepped in to do that after someone got sick, someone had COVID. So he was on the stage all the time. I got an opportunity to give a keynote address on Monday night, as well as a seminar and a panel discussion. And I was a Shark Tank judge. Yeah which is weird. Um, it's for evangelism. So we gave away over $100,000 to different ministries that were doing really great evangelism um, um, initiatives, which was really fun. So that was really good. So Crosswalk was kind of all over the place. And I learned two things. One of the things that I learned is that incredi I'm incredibly blessed. We are incredibly blessed to work at this church, multiple staff, amazing people, amazing communities of belonging, multiple churches all throughout the United States. Like we don't have to do ministry alone. And there's so many pastors in North America that are literally doing ministry by themselves in multiple churches. I talked to one guy, he's got like six churches, a thousand miles in between all of them that he pastors. And so if, if you put, if you can, I got to certainly put it on my heart and I hope he puts it on yours to, to just pray for the pastors in North America. Um, and, and I got to say, the second thing that I learned is this, Pastor Ron is like OG as far as like presidents. Like I had conference presidents who were coming up to me and were like, you hired Pastor Ron? How'd you do that? I'm like, we're amazing. That's why. I think that's the, re that's the reason. Um, anyway, he's, he's well-known, well-loved, and all the pastors in the Illinois conference kept coming up to me going, I can't believe you took him. And I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't care. So anyway, it was, really, it was really good. We're really glad everything's here. But it's been, a big, it's been a big week in general, right? Lots of stuff going on in the country, lots of stuff going on in the world, certainly. Um, and, and as Christians, we're, we're called to kind of negotiate and navigate through these waters. Um, and, and there's going to be people that sit in, this, in these pews on, on every side of every coin, right? Um, people who feel certain things and, and believe in certain ways. And we are a community of belonging. And I believe that the church has been called to be bridge builders through all of this. And, and that's not always an easy thing to do. So I'm going to ask you for three things during this again, time of, you know, an interesting time in the North American world. Um, I'm going to ask for three things. The first thing that I'm going to ask you is that you accept ambiguity. We know that the issues of the day are not as simple as most people would have us seem. There's a binary that's put out there that you're on this side of an issue or that side of an issue. Now, we're human beings. We know that every issue is multifaceted, and we know that there's a lot of ambiguity in the midst of it. So I'm going to ask that you accept that ambiguity, which leads us to the next point that I want you to really commit to, 
which is that you're willing to listen with curiosity. It's important that we listen to the people around us. It's important that we, now I'm not saying don't believe what you believe. I would never say that. What I'm saying is that we listen with curiosity as we learn why other people think the way they do and why God has placed certain burdens on certain people's hearts in certain ways. I think that's important. And the third thing I'm going to ask for you to do, so I want you to accept ambiguity. I want you to listen with curiosity. And the third thing that I really would like you to, to bring into the world that you live in is that you embrace the dignity of people around you. God has imbued every single one of us with his image, regardless of what, where you fall on any given issue. And so if you can embrace that dignity, we can continue a community of belonging that listens, that, that accepts this ambiguity. And, and Nelson Mandela said, that the most dangerous human being is a humiliated human being. Even if they were humiliated for the right reasons, they're still dangerous. And so for us as Christians, I believe, it's important for us to embrace the dignity of every single person. Their viewpoint, you don't have to agree with it. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to raise the level of conversation in your life so that we can continue with communities of belonging while listening and while still working for the burden that God has placed on our hearts. And that kind of brings us to this last bit of Christophany as we finish up talking about the prophets, right? Last week we talked about the prophetic voice and what prophets were like, which as we can kind of understand, they were pretty difficult kinds of people. And then if you read the series guide, you realize that we we're going through a whole bunch of texts. We're not going to do a whole bunch of, well, we're going to do a whole bunch of texts, but we're going to do them from one book. We're going to lean into the book of Habakkuk, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with because you read it all the time. Um, if you can find it in your Bibles, that's the book we're going to be reading from today. Today. And it begins with a title, and the title is The Oracle of the Prophet Habakkuk, which is um, really interesting. This word oracle is a really misunderstood word in describing the content of the prophetic books. It almost feels negative, this idea of an oracle, because we see it in some of the other books. This is the oracle, oracle against Edom. This is the oracle against Midian, right? It's this word. But, and while it has negative and kind of ominous overtones, it really refers to the divine word that's received. In fact, we could say it this way, an oracle is the burden that the prophet carries, right? It's a burden that God has placed on their heart. The word that God has placed on their heart that they carry. Not every oracle was the same and not every oracle was the same two different places. So I'll ask this question today as we begin, what is your oracle? Meaning what is your burden? What do you carry with you as a burden? Justice, mercy, equality, these types of things, right? And what do you do when they're not happening? And how do you intervene and interfere so that that burden of your heart becomes a little bit lighter? One of the things we've got to understand is that different people have different burdens. What might drive you crazy about the world might not drive the person next to you crazy because that's not the burden that God has placed on their heart. The truth is we need each other's burdens and we need each other to carry the burdens that we have. We're not always to make someone else's burden ours and sometimes that we do, right? What I get a lot after church is someone will come up and say, oh, pastor, what you should be doing is this, right? And sometimes I think, you know what? That's the burden that God has placed on your heart. I do not have that same burden, right? And sometimes I do, but, but everybody has different burdens. It's really easy to be myopic with our own oracle, to think that the issue that burns in our heart, the issue that we carry very heavily on our shoulders, is the only issue everyone should be thinking about, 
right? And then we get really kind of angry when other people don't feel that, not only don't feel the same way, don't feel the importance of the same thing that we carry. But God convicts each heart differently. That does not mean that your conviction is less or more than someone else's. But the important thing is the way that we deal with it and listen together more than we often do. The way that we accept ambiguity, the way that we listen with curiosity, and the way that we embrace the dignity of the people around us means that we can continue a community of belonging. Because everything in the world is pushing us to opposite sides, but Christ is a bridge builder who brings us together. So we've got to figure out the way of Christ in the midst of this. And, and prophets sometimes were called to that oracle, to that burden, to speak and to divide. And sometimes they were called to redirect. In fact, if we wanted to have a, a job description of a prophet, the prophets were this. The prophets were preachers who communicated God's words in order to transform their audience thinking and social behavior. They were persuading people to look at life in a radically different way. Right? I got this from one of the commentaries. I believe it was Barker's commentary. And so as we jump into the book of Habakkuk, we have to take a look and see what he was saying and what the burden of his heart was. It begins like this. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk, this is the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk, this is the burden that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. And this term prophet is used here. Only Habakkuk, Haggai, and Zechariah use that in the title, which means they are recognized as someone who's speaking directly from God. And what's interesting is that the word prophet in Hebrew means to bubble up, indicating the overflowing message of the prophet to the people from God. The Akkadian term for prophet actually meant to call, but what we understand is that it's God's authorized spokesperson. Now, we got to ask another question, which is how can a 2,600-year-old message still be relevant today? How can it impact our contemporary world? First of all, we understand this. The prophetic message continues to speak to us because it comes from God. And because it comes from God, it continues to communicate the ways of God to modern people as well. We read these things and we take up principles and we take up themes and we take up understandings that are, that are universal and that are eternal. And so we can find those things in the words of the prophet, those words that come directly from God. Also, we know that the prophets forged their message in a historical circumstances. This means that the message from God came to real people in everyday experiences of life, as well as in times of crisis. And we also know that though society has changed, human nature has not changed. People still need to know that God is at work in the historical situation, in our lives, in every day, in our nation, in our world. People continue to face the problem of sin and the necessity of repentance. Now, oftentimes these prophetic books were put in as a question and answer situation. And Habakkuk starts a little bit differently. There's certainly questions and answers, but it's not the same. It's really a response that we see. It's a strange beginning for a prophetic book. You see, prophetic books, starts in, prophetic books all start in very different ways, and this one is pretty unique. Isaiah begins with God's complaint against his people. Jeremiah, with a mysterious he, with, with Jeremiah mysteriously hearing God's description of a prenatal call that he was given and his lament of that call, Jeremiah didn't want to be the prophet. Ezekiel starts off with an eerie theophaic experience, right? God shows up in this weird and kind of mysterious way. 
right? Amos has a more kind of normal theophany where God shows up and tells, tells him that they need to lean into justice, right? Followed by complaints or oracles against foreign nations. Hosea starts with God's invitation to marry a harlot. That's a weird one. Joel, by asking people's questions about the causes of the current conditions. Obadiah opens with God's call to battle against Edom. Micah announces a theophany. Nahum with a confession of faith in a jealous and avenging God of wrath. Zephaniah with an oracle of judgment. Haggai begins with God's condemning quotation of a complacent people's refusal to do his work. Zechariah gives a call to immediate repentance. Malachi with God's confession of love for a people who don't believe. But Habakkuk... Habakkuk is weary. He's tired of the world and how it is. And I wonder, do we ever get tired of the world and how it is? Would our burden sound like this? How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you don't come to save. This opening complaint finds a response rather than an answer. This is an Old Testament poetry, by the way. The meter is 3-2. You don't need to know any of that. But I got to tell you, what we see here is a tension in the unanswered prayer. And my bet is that you've lived in the tension of unanswered prayer, right? Do you get weary like Habakkuk? Do you weary of the world, praying for change but not seeing it? Growing tired of the waiting even? This sets the tone for the entire book. Right? And it's, it's fascinating because here Habakkuk faces the dilemma that has confronted faithful people in every age. The dilemma of seemingly unanswered prayer for the healing of the world of society. The prophet is one of those people who fervently prays for peace in a world and experiences only war. He's one of those people who prays for God's good to come on earth and who finds only human evil. But he is also the one with every soul who prays for healing beside his sickbed only to experience death. With every spouse who has prayed for love to come home only to anger and hatred. With every anxious person he prays who's prayed for serenity but then has been further disturbed and agitated. We understand this, unanswered prayer is painful for us to live in wondering what it is we're going to do. So what do we do? We cry out. One of the things we do is we make deals. We try to change things ourselves. By the way, making deals with God is a really dicey business. If you make a deal with God, there's one of two things that are going to happen. One, God doesn't answer the prayer and you just feel that much more sadness that God hasn't heard you or thought that your deal was good. Or the second thing is God does answer the prayer and then you got to make good on a deal that you never thought you were really going to have to make good on anyway because we have a tendency to promise way too much and we're never going to give that to God. Don't make deals with God. God has made promises to us long ago. All we have to do is lean into those promises rather than making deals that would change God's mind for something. So Habakkuk continues in verse three, must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. Sounds like a difficult time. Sounds like today. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. He's just explaining the situation. This is what's happening. And this is why things are so bad. 
And then he leans into the idea of justice being perverted. He says the law has been paralyzed and there's no justice in the courts anymore. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that the justice has become perverted. Justice is a theme here, right? Now what's fascinating is that 12 years before in the time of Josiah, there was massive reforms, massive educational reforms, massive religious reforms, massive even judicial and legislative reforms that happened in Judah. But in 12 years, it had all fallen apart. You got to remember, empires fall quickly. Kingdoms last forever. The kingdom of God is what we try and live in, but the empires fall quick. And in 12 years, since the time of Josiah, Judah had gotten into a bad situation. So now the Lord's going to reply, right? Habakkuk puts it all out there. Listen, what's going on? Justice, everything. This is all a mess. Now the Lord replies. Now I know that we all think that we want God to reply, but I don't know that we do. Because when God replies, it's never what we're expecting. We'd love it to be. We'd like God to say, you know what? I hadn't paid attention. You're absolutely right. Let's figure this out. This is not what God says. The Lord replies this way. Look around at the nations. Look around and be amazed. You see, Habakkuk was confused because he knew the Lord to be holy and righteous, but he didn't seem to be doing anything about this evil. So now the Lord replies, and it is not what Habakkuk was expecting. Look around at the nations, look around and be amazed. Now, one of the things that's happening here is God is saying, and it was pretty common in the Old Testament for people to think my God is better than your God and think very tribally about the God. So God here is saying, Look at the nations, which he's beginning to lean into this idea that I may be working outside of just Judah. And so he says this, I'm doing something in your own day. So in your lifetime, right now, I'm working, I'm doing something. Something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. So what we see here is that God's answer is going to be both comforting and confusing. It would both amaze and frighten the prophet. But he did tell Habakkuk that he is at work, just not in the ways that people thought. Has God ever worked on your behalf, but not in the way that you expected? Did he ever make you wait? Did he ever take a really circuitous route to get to where you wanted to go or where you believed he was calling you to go? God rarely works linearly. I don't know if you know this. He has a tendency to mess things up. You've got a plan. God just, it seems like he has fun messing with that. The same thing's happening. So God's about to tell Habakkuk what he's going to do. And he's like, listen, you're not even going to believe this. This is how wild my plan is. Are you ready? He says this, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They're going to march across the world. They're going to conquer other lands. They're going to conquer your land. Now, who, who could have believed that God's answer to wickedness in Judah would have been Babylon? But there's an interesting seed of truth here. You see, God is like, this, 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 this culture, this civilization is being raised up and it's going to conquer your land. But there's also a recognition in this text that evil has within itself the seed of destruction. He knows that Babylon's not going to last forever. If God is going to raise these evil people up, he knows that he can use them for the good of Judah in the end. Why would God use Babylon? Because they were really self-destructive, right? They have really self-destructive traits, greed, cruelty, arrogance, self-sufficiency, haughtiness, blasphemy, all these things. And these next verses kind of vividly describe this, right? This is God speaking, by the way. He's like, listen, they're notorious for their cruelty. Do whatever they like. 
Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusks. The, the charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down to devour their prey. On they come, bent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert winds, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their fortresses. They simply pile up ramps of dirt, dirt against their walls and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone. But they are deeply guilty for their own strength as their God. So we ask this question again, why would God use them? I think because God can use every circumstance in our lives to root out evil. And sometimes as we lean into this idea of evil, God says, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna have to use this now because this is where we are and I'm gonna have to get us to a different place. He can teach us through it. We begin to see that here. Again, this reminds us that God is bigger than a national God. He works in other nations as well. This would have been pretty astounding words to the prophet that God is gonna use Babylon to bring about righteousness in Israel. So Habakkuk decides to respond and he says, hey, God, Lord my God, my holy one, reminding God he's holy, you are eternal too, right? Because Habakkuk is worried. So he asks these questions. He knows both God's righteousness and the Babylonians' evil, and he wants clarification. Surely you don't want to wipe us out, right? Oh, Lord, our rock, he's reminding God, he's kind of buttering him up a little bit. Oh, Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you just wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? We're better than them, we think, at least which is, by the way, a stretch because they weren't much better than the Babylonians at the time. And his questions are dealing with the nature of God and it confused Habakkuk. God is holy and holiness is often emphasized, but he wants to paint a vivid picture for those listening and for God who is confusing him at this point. So he goes in deeper. He's like, listen, are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets? while they rejoice and celebrate? Because then they're going to worship their nets. They're not going to worship you, God. They're going to worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods that have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Come on, God. Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? Have you ever been confused by God's action or his inaction? Habakkuk takes the time to make it very clear Things are bad, but they're about to get a lot worse if God is not going to do something. And then what God says he's going to do confuses Habakkuk even more. Now, if we're transferring this to the time that we live in, it feels like things are bad sometimes. And it feels like things can't get worse. And then we see something worse coming on the horizon. And we see, since that thing worse on the horizon, we look to God and we're like, how are you going to use this? How are you going to do this? What are we supposed to do in the midst of what seems like overwhelming treachery, overwhelming evil? What are we supposed to do when things in our world aren't going well and there's another world that's going to come in that seems a lot worse than our world and it's going to make us, but how is God going to do that? What is God going to do? Listen, I, I spend a lot of my time as a pastor trying to answer these questions for people. And I don't know that I have great answers a lot. I feel like there's a lot of time where I'm just like, I don't know, it's just as confusing to me as it is for you. 
So the question doesn't become why is God doing this or how is God doing this? The question becomes what do I do in the midst of this? What is my job? What is my role in the midst of not understanding this? And Habakkuk has an answer. It's a longer book, so you should read the whole book. It doesn't take that long. But he doesn't have an answer. We're moving into chapter 2. So that delineation, that line right between chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells us that there's new thoughts about to happen. So Habakkuk is about to answer this question. And he, he clearly doesn't understand what God is doing. So he simply says this. All right. I will climb to my watchtower and I'll stand at my guard post. And there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. So Habakkuk, in the midst of all his laments, in the midst of all his frustration, in the midst of all his misunderstanding, decides he will stand with God. That he will wait for God to show an answer. Even when God tells him he's going to work in a way that he doesn't understand, he says, fine, I don't understand. I will stand right here at my watch where you asked me to be. I will stay at my guard post. And there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Because for Habakkuk, he understands that there's a faithfulness that we are called to in the midst of not understanding what's really going on. And there's a faithfulness that we are supposed to live in our lives if we say that we're people of faith. Faith is not knowing the answer, friends. Faith is not necessarily knowing the process. Faith is a decision to trust God. And in the midst of everything, and God told him, I'm going to use the Babylonians. And he's like, I don't know how. I'll be faithful. I will, I will lean into your promises as much as I don't understand what you're doing, as much as I don't understand where this is going to get us to a better righteousness and a better faithfulness, I will be faithful. I will stand on my watchtower and stand at my guard post. And then the Lord responds to him, and it's pretty fascinating what he says. So the Lord said to Habakkuk, write my answer plainly on tablets. I want you to get this right when you tell people so that a runner can carry the correct messages to others. I don't want you to mess this up. Write it down. He says, listen, what you're seeing, this is a vision for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. It seems slow. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It's not going to be delayed. And then he gives a little bit of a warning. He says, look at the proud. In this time of misunderstanding, in this time when you don't know what's going on, they trust in themselves, but their lives are crooked. But the righteous, they'll live by their faithfulness to God. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because a few years ago when we studied the book of Romans, we spent time on this particular text because Paul quotes it. But Paul messed with it. Here it says the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. What Romans says is those who live by faith will be righteous. That righteousness is not because you've been good, it's because you figured out the system. That righteousness comes from your faithfulness and the way that you have faith in God. That righteousness is imbued in you. You want righteousness in your life, it's not gonna become, it's not gonna come from you getting better and better. It's going to come from the gift of God. That's how this world becomes a better place. 
That's how we, we thwart the Babylonians that are going to run over our cities and our towns and our lives. It's not going to be because we figured it out. We're not going to trust in ourselves because our lives are always going to end up crooked. It's going to come from being faithful to the call of God, from walking up to that tower and being on our guard post, doing what God has asked us to do. So the only question I have for you today is this. What watch do you need to stand on? We all have oracles. We all have burdens that we carry. Some become really present when, when, when things are happening in the world and we feel them really strongly. And then other times they quiet down, but we don't all have the same oracle. We don't all have the same burden. But what we can be called to do is stay our watch, not understanding necessarily what God is doing, believing that God is good and staying at our guard posts faithfully, believing that this vision for the end of time will come true because God has promised that he's working, even if he's working in ways that we don't understand it. The anxiety that we feel oftentimes is that we've got to fix it, whatever it is. But even our fixing is going to break it just a little more. So we wait. Waiting's not passive. Waiting's an act of faith. And if God has given you a burden, you should absolutely live that burden out. Speak to that burden. I'm not saying don't do that. But also, make sure that you're listening to what God is saying. And make sure that the faithfulness that you have is first and foremost in your life. As you have conversations with people that might have different burdens or different burdens than you, I ask for three things. Accept that ambiguity, listen curiously, and embrace the dignity that God has given all of us. Stay at your post. God is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your prophets are confusing sometimes. I think they're less confusing to, than sometimes the words that you say to them. But make us faithful. Lord, tell us we're supposed to stand. Give us the strength and courage to stand there and stay. Let us be faithful to you. Lord, I don't understand what's always happening in the world. I get pretty confused. But I know the burdens that you've placed on my heart and I want to stay true to those because I believe they're from you. They're visions that you've given me and I know that every of us have those same feelings. So Lord, may we listen. But we also speak to the burdens on our hearts. And Lord, may you continue to build a community of belonging in the midst of crisis, in the midst of misunderstanding, but with a group of people who are willing to be faithful to being bridge builders and being a community where everyone is accepted and everyone is brought in. And Lord, come quickly. You can solve all this in a moment. But if you wait, we'll wait too. And we'll be faithful as well. We pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.